Welcome to the Grimshaw Podcast, Building the City Series, with your host, Tim Williams. Hi, I'm Tim Williams. I'm your host for the Grimshaw Cities Podcast Series. Uh, I'm delighted that my wonderful guest today is the estimable Julie Wagner, who is president of the Global Institute of Innovation Districts. And so we're going to have a great conversation about what they are, about economic development and cities from somebody who actually more or less invented the notion of innovation district, which has now been taken up in dozens of cities internationally. Julie Wagner, you're very welcome. So hello, Julie Wagner, president of the Global Institute of Innovation Districts. How are you? I'm fantastic. How are you, Tim? I'm good. I'm sitting in Sydney. Where are you, where are you sitting? At the current moment, I am sitting in Switzerland, Lugano. Lugano, and as you say, that's the north. I'm very interested in the cultural facts of these matters. That's the Italian part. Yes, it is. Of Switzerland. It is. Historically. We'll, we'll find out afterwards how you got there because we're quite interested in people's history as well. But <laughs> first and Perfect. foremost, first and foremost, yeah, and gossip. Right, first and foremost, could you, uh, lots of people out there will be very interested in innovation districts and they might say, well, is that the same as innovation precincts? Could you tell us as what I regard as the world's, you are, I think you might be the world's leading expert on innovation districts who's been, who's worked in at least 25 cities, I believe, on this stuff. And you've definitely worked in Australia on, on, uh, on innovation districts. Could you tell people some basic elements of what an innovation district actually is? Yes. Happy to do so. Innovation districts, they're a place-based geography of innovation. They are predominantly clustered around R&D strong medical institutions or universities. So they're leveraging those sort of embedded assets, those anchor assets that are found uh, predominantly in cities, largely in the midtown of cities. But there are other kinds of districts actually that are transforming urban landscape, but really have to take those anchor institutions as one of those core ingredients to make that work. So you can transform urban land in another geography outside of a midtown, but the anchor institution component, that R&D focus is critical in defining what an innovation district is. So innovation districts really are the combination of anchor institutions plus companies with a strong R&D component that are clustering and connecting in close proximity. So that physical proximity, you know, the level of accessibility, the transportation options, all of these things sort of factor in to what makes an innovation district. And we'll dig deeper. Yes. Uh, but they, they, they seem to have... Um, two or three core elements, and I think you, you very expertly talk about these, but around there are place elements, there are, I guess, economic elements, but there are also governance uh, elements. And I, you've written a paper, right. you've just published a paper on, on the governance of innovation districts, which we'll come back to. But if there were three or four core elements to, a, um, and we'll talk about some great uh, innovation districts that you have known, you know, mm -hmm. but, but what do you think the, are there some three or four kind of common elements to the innovation district? Yeah, well, in our original paper called The Rise of Innovation Districts, we really tried to break it down sort of into three core areas that you know you need to have. So those economic assets, which include those anchor institutions, those companies, and those important intermediaries. There's the physical assets. So that has to do with the 
the ability to actually have places for these for these actors and talent to locate in in close proximity to each other. So it's it's buildings, it's parks, it's streets, but it's a reimagining of these places so they become much more seamless and synergistic. And then there's the social networking assets, which often seem to be forgotten. Uh, these are sort of how different people, different kinds of talent, different kinds of organizations come together in different ways. And so that's like through programs and workshops and events and sort of really interesting different kinds of platforms that are starting to evolve. I, honestly, this is such an important piece of what makes these districts prosper Uh that if you don't have this part, you could argue that you almost have just a real estate play. So these are sort of those fundamental assets. Yeah. So we might as well go there next, actually, because the although I do want to do a bit of the history of this, because uh, so I want to talk about the governance thing and the paper you've just published. And I think what you're saying is, in a sense, you can have all the other elements that look good. About the potential for a you know innovation district, but it's like you can take the horse to water, but you can't make it drink. You know you've got you've got to have some driving force, some governance relationship, something that actually makes it all gel together. And I'm, I've always assumed, by the way, before we do the history, that the that the um, the anchor institution. We we need to say something about that concept as well because that's a really important idea uh, as well. And and anchor institutions can be in the public and the private sector, can't they? Some, some of the American examples of uh, innovation districts have universities or they have um, maybe even hospitals sometimes uh, at, at the centre of them. But anyway, it's the, the, the idea of the, the anchor institution. Could you say something about what an anchor institution in your sense is? Yeah. So, you know, we have actually spent quite a bit of time analyzing institutions just themselves in looking at innovation districts. We have a global network of 23 where we've pulled together a set of really diverse innovation districts to analyze their anchor institution strengths. And so what we have found in looking at those is we look at the universities and they have they're really very different types of universities that are embedded in, in innovation districts, there's medical institutions, there's independent research institutions, there's joint initiatives and institutions by government, by universities, by medical institutions, by philanthropy. There's a whole sort of range of institutions, if you will, that are embedded in a number of these districts. And so what we've been doing is actually analyzing the combined strength the combined strength of these institutions to understand how they undergird an innovation district. And this has been and a phenomenal the, experience, by the way. So have you surprised yourself by what you've, you've learned from the research? I mean, the, uh, the, the, you just to say to people, they can get a copy of the research paper that you've just done, which is about governance Correct. In, in innovation districts. And you're talking a little bit about what's what's in it, but um, could you say a bit about the research and what, what you looked at, and you know the research base, and then some of the conclusions that you, you you've reached? Yeah, sure. So let me let me just take my last thought. So we did this work on looking at the combined strengths of innovation districts, and we said, whoa, you know, you have you're clearly powering above your weight in terms of size and geography. How are you harnessing that then? 
What does that mean to take that and move to the next level of competitiveness? That requires a thought of orchestration and organization because the natural reaction is to fall back within oneself as an organization, as an entity, as a company. This is the natural way of organizing because it's easy. You're within your entity. A district notion is how do you work across actor? How do you build and leverage up and create something much more synergistic? This is not an easy task. Okay. And it requires organizing. So it requires sitting down in a room. And I would argue, frankly, locking the door to uh, take the time to understand what does it mean to create a joint agenda where we as a collective can create a geography that accomplishes a set of things, not just one thing, not just two things, but actually becomes a multiplier of growth, leveraging the strengths that we have. Okay, now I would argue that one of those is about what specific problems are we best suited to solve? Don't talk about yourself in the world of disciplines. Talk about yourself in the world of impact. What does that look like? If we are best suited to take on a very specific set of challenges related to climate change, what are those who has to come to the table? How do we shift our priorities, our resources, our teams, the timing, the sequencing? This is orchestration at its most ultimate form. Is the challenge <clears throat> that if you were doing this and it wasn't an innovation district, but you were just a company on its own, right? Trying to you know, organize and shepherd its own resources, that they find that that's, a, that's obvious to them. But when you've got a bunch of people having to work together, you need a first actor, you need you know, some, somebody to uh, say, this may not be my, um, what's the word? This may not be my day job. Right. But, but I'm, I'm, make, I'm making this happen because we can see the, the, the kind of long-term benefits for all of us. You know, two plus two equals five, you know, uh, if we work together. But it, it's, it is a job of finding the resources, Making the coalitions, you know, it does require, as you as you know, uh, and as you've written about, it requires quite a lot of effort to to achieve this. And presumably, some otherwise good, potentially good uh, innovation district propositions fall fall to one side because they just can't make that happen. Yeah, I I think in the beginning of my paper, I actually I argue. Um, you know, the, frankly, that the long-term success of innovation districts hinges on their ability to organize, including some form of effective governance. And I wrote, I rewrote the beginning of that paper after I had traveled around to a whole set of innovation districts and I understood they have such strength, they have such potential and capacity to take on some of these really significantly daunting challenges before us, but they're not organized effectively. And in some cases, those that had started to organize and create this really interesting connective tissue between actor and institution, dedicate staff to sort of drive a joint agenda and now start talking about creating some sort of mission-driven organization. They're now thinking about unraveling that. Is oh, We don't need that. You need that. And so I rewrote the beginning of this paper saying, wake up wake up 
I've spent too much time talking, engaging, working with districts that have moved beyond the emerging stages and have been growing and evolving. And the only way they've been able to do that is through effective governance, where the work, the hard work of how to pull together all the different pieces is in fact at the center of someone's desk. It has to be at the center of someone's desk. Otherwise you're just kidding yourself. It's a, it's a I, hobby, and I need to paint this in black and white. I, I feel that. So that's I'm... really powerful. <laughs> yeah. See, I, I, lots of people might be surprised at the at the passion of this, right? Because, but I, this is where a little bit of the history go back a bit now. We'll we'll definitely go forward into this discussion, but let's go back because I, I think you deserve. I, I, I you'll tell me the history because I know Bruce Katz was probably involved as well early early on in the Brookings, but. You've got a strong feel of paternity. I don't know what the word is. Ownership. You know, you've you've been involved with this idea from virtually the beginning. If you didn't invent it, you spotted it uh, and then built on it. Um, what, more than ten years ago. Yes. Um, I mean, I I think I first met you. I think in in Australia when uh, in I don't know 2014 or maybe and 2015 something like that. So you've been. Built, not only thinking about this thing and writing it and researching it, you've built the Global Institute to try and help uh, innovation districts de develop. So let's go back. Let's go back. W when did you first come across? I think people are as interested in history as they are in the future. When did you first come across this stuff? How did you? How did it happen? Julie Wagner, explain. <laughs> Where did yeah. it come from? <laughs> so Bruce Katz and I at the Brookings Institution undertook... Uh, research starting in 2009 and Gosh. where we actually traveled to Barcelona. And in that journey, we started to, we looked at 22 at, and we understood sort of this level oh, yeah. of intentionality, right? On the part of the government there to think through how, what does it mean to advance, you know, a, their own competitive proposition and move up the value chain of competitiveness and to be thinking about the the development of new knowledge and innovation clusters in an intentional way. So we saw this really interesting combination of sort of cluster theory, place making, sort of thinking about social growth and evolution, how you're actually growing residents into new jobs. There was a whole level of orchestration that frankly we hadn't seen before. And it, it, it really was a blending of really different theories uh, that it took us probably four or five years to sort of unpack. And we found ourselves, frankly, really in love with what the sociologists in the world were understanding about different networks and how new insights were being gained and carried forward and how that can be manifested through place, through programs, through people. And so when we looked at 22 at, we then started to see, well, wait a minute, this is something that's actually evolving and happening in other places. You know, so there is this sort of broader set of trends happening at this moment, the confluence of trends around economic, demographic, cultural trends that are giving rise to the collapse back of innovation, if you will, into cities, valuing proximity, leveraging density, invest, like leveraging those decades of investments on innovation infrastructure and on public infrastructure to move to the next level. So we wrote this paper. It was a reflection of what was happening out there. It was not us putting forth a proposition. It was us reflecting on what we saw globally. 
Interesting. The I I'd forgotten about the link with um, it's Poblin now, isn't it? The or, uh, the uh, Barcelona twenty two at um, which I went to a few years ago. But um, I, and I, I think there's two things about that that are really interesting. One is around a special, possibly a special um, what's the word? City identity helps in uh, in in creating the kind of collaboration. I th- I suspect anyway in in Barcelona um, and post Olympic. As well, where they they probably come together quite a lot in the in the nineties and where they've never done before. But uh, but also the opening up of a new district. Your your point is the coming together of, of various theories. You know, like uh, so one is uh, place making stuff. Uh, the other one's economic agglomeration. I guess you know the the Correct. idea of bringing people together. The the way in which they they can spark off each other and innovation flows from that. I think there was an interesting broader uh, thinking about it now. I, I wouldn't have thought this back in. 2013, 2014, but thinking about it now, it was probably part of the wider rediscovery of the city by knowledge knowledge workers, but mm-hmm. that the but the economic oomph of of a, of an innovation district happens in certain parts of that recovering city, not 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 everywhere, and I, I think it might be because I come from a slightly more kind of urbanist background, I guess we should talk a little bit about the place side of this you know the uh, it, see I was attracted to your thinking your research in Sydney because when I was running the committee for Sydney I felt that you know that Australia's got this great population growth story but actually quite a banal productivity st- story um, it effectively has, has uh, been helped enormously by exports of, of basic raw materials and hasn't been having a kind of added value economy part of it I, I'd always I'd felt coming from London was that it just wasn't dense enough. It just was a, a kind of low-density low, low density suburban city and that actually was missing a few tricks from getting agglomeration in certain places. And, and, and for me, therefore, the, your thinking about innovation districts actually tactically, you know, for me, was as well as strategically, was the right place for Australian cities to go, you know, that they, they needed to, they didn't have some of these places necessarily naturally, but they could put them together quite well because they had some of the strong the elements of success and that there, and there were places that they could develop in there were in universities in in Sydney and now we've got tech central or, you know around the station and I know you've been involved in in several of the innovation district initiatives in Australia so 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 I think it's very in, interesting for people to understand this it, it's a very a kind of not just eclectic it kind of is a is a is a good coming together of three or four different types of theory you know place theory economic theory you know clustering and I like all that and, and that made it very powerful and for me very um, believable very credible very evidence based and then y- y- just to go to the subsequent history from our point of view here your your input and, your, and the contribution of um, you and, and Bruce a bit the Brookings and then what you what you then went on to do with this concept had a big impact has had a big impact in in Australian cities you know there are innovation districts I think happening partly because of the impact of your work and not just your writing but actually because you've been there and advised people so I just want to say you know you're not just a consultant you know you've actually helped make stuff happen right so so before I go back into my deeply into this Australian story could you say a bit about I, I remember I always like asking people about their greatest hits right so uh, what do you think what do you think of the uh, good examples if people want to find out more about any you know successful innovation districts are there four or five that you would point to to say have a look at those 
Yeah, I so I look at um, innovation districts as a series of lessons because the power of districts is they're so different from each other. They're not replicating from each other. They're building off their intrinsic strengths. They're they're thinking about, you know, how do we leverage our unique leaders and what do we care about? Like, what is our vision and our ambition? And so with that, what you'll find is when you go see one innovation district, you, you've really only seen one innovation district because this is how different they are. So rather than sort of say, here are the top three, the part that I've found to be much more on point is what can we learn from different districts about what they're doing in a really powerful or unique way and use these as sort of interesting levers or insights for districts themselves to think about what could this mean for me? So let me take an example of one in the United States, which is the Cortex Innovation Community. The story that I bring from that one is an area with strong anchor institutions, such as Wash U, St. Louis. Um, and then you have you know, a series of anchors, four, five, that have understood that they collectively are strong, but they were losing their base of talent. Their researchers were leaving, their students were leaving, their future of what they've been trying to create was leaving. And so this is a story of how organized leadership came together at the beginning and said, we have an imperative to do something different to transform our economy, transform our assets, actually to create a center of growth for our region, which is a struggle. And this for is where, for, so, for those who don't this know is where, Saint, where it is. St. Louis Cortex. St. Louis. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So the story here is the, the, the drive and the vision right from the beginning that ultimately, with some bumps at the beginning, but created a strong mission-driven organization a separate entity, a not-for-profit entity with a leader, a set of teams that were focused on how to steer the ship. But it came from a set of very committed leaders in these anchor institutions to say, we can do more, but it has to be together. So this is a story that I always pull on. Let me now move to Medellin in Colombia because they have an innovation district there. And the power of that story has to do, it's, it's many, but their story is they also realized they needed to organize, but it wasn't necessarily one that was coming up from the anchor institutions. It was the city itself that said, actually, wait a minute, we know we need to drive our innovation economy. We need to grow firms. We need to actually grow our residents into jobs. How do we take this on? So they created a structure that was actually city-led, but they infused power into the structure through different committees involving industry, involving anchors to create a level of soft power, if you will, where they created a collective. So I, I, I contrast those two because they both organize differently but they had the same intention of becoming a multiplier of growth. And so at the beginning, these two stories, 
They could have just gone on to say, let's develop this building. Let's grow and create this real estate play. That wasn't it. It was a vision tied to how to organize, how to leverage the leadership base. Both of those did those in very different ways. And so I want to sort of start there. There are others that are thinking about how to organize with equitable growth at the center of their desk. So the Cleveland Health Tech Corridor now has a philanthropic, a community foundation actually now located in the innovation district to be in some ways a new kind of anchor that is focused on how do we grow our base of regional residents into the growing and changing jobs of our time. And they have invested in land, invested in new kinds of infrastructure, tied with anchor institutions, tied with industry to create an equitable growth innovation agenda, which is fascinating. So- I think I think that that evolution, therefore, of the of the concept and and who's benefiting from it is a very interesting uh, evolution of it. It seems to me. I, I was one thing that struck me when you were talking, and I've never thought of this actually before, is that people might get the idea that only a very successful economies can create innovation districts, um, and that you know, in a sense, like the Bible says to us, to those that have shall more be given, you know, not, not, not necessarily. I do, I do suspect that you can be very low down the economic uh, chart and not, and not have enough wherewithal to do this kind of thing. But I, I, I think from your features being positively nodding at this point in time that actually, you know, it, 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 the, the innovation district, it's not just something that's successful top of the league cities do. It's not just a Boston and Harvard or something. I mean, you just mentioned, um, uh, you know, parts of the UK, of the US that have actually, you know, historically been going through some rough, some rough times and Correct. needing to reinvent themselves economically. But I guess they still have lots of skills left over from their previous year of growth and residual companies that could like reinvent themselves slightly i i don't know but could you say something about this whole idea whether it's just economically successful places yeah i think look i it's i often look at these through a series of baskets right first like okay what are the anchor anchor institutions that you have there are they tier one universities are they top notch where are they particularly excelling how entrepreneurial are they the level of translational research, the extent to which they have peer review articles that actually are being used and are applied for patents, for joint publications, for commercialization. Um, you know, we look at a whole series of indicators this way, in addition to the state of the region, the success, the kinds of you know powers that may be that sort of help underpin that. It absolutely matters. But at the same time, if you don't go down and look at what are those particular assets and how can you leverage that, then you're going to gloss over some really interesting places. In fact, many emerging sort of second tier regions and cities are using this as a strategy for growing their competitive base. And that's how I look at it. But what that means, though, is they need to be organized. That They have to be buttoned up from the very beginning because this is not an exercise of stray cats. It's an org. It's a it's a it's a it's an effort around shaping a collective vision where you have the right 
actors at the table. And that's a diversified voice. That is not just a few people at the table with a select amount of power. It's actually understanding how do we diversify that base from the beginning to make sure that our future and our outputs are much more diversified and multiplied. It's thinking about how you effectively govern. Do we want to create some sort of company whose mission and focus is to support and prop up this district and to do so in a nimble way, pull together people, understand where the gaps are, think through how to address those gaps? These are the kinds of questions that should be happening early, not in year four or five. Right. So these are the things that critically need to happen, especially in places where you don't have the strongest economy. Right. right. But that you are fighting to move up the value chain. See, I often think and I, I, I get a hint of what of this in what you're saying. So there, are, there would be a place three hours north of Sydney called Newcastle where it's a former industrial, former port. It's, it's still got lots of huge coal activity going through, but it's needing to reinvent itself, you know. And one thing I'm confident about is that it has a shared identity. It has a, it's not a huge city. It's, you know, uh, half a million people in the, in the area. You know, it's, it's, it's got a, a knowable business community that's probably quite close to the public sector as well. So that it feels like a, a naturally collaborative um, pride, really, around doing something for Newcastle, which is a lot easier to pull off than in a place like Sydney with five and a half million people and lots of different tribes and you know regional areas that don't necessarily know each other very well and and a big city may not be able to collaborate as well as a smaller one i don't know if that makes sense it's it's from place to place honestly the the the, the size doesn't necessarily define the ease or non-ease it really is the leaders that are there is there a clear imperative for them to do something bigger than just themselves. I will have to say this, you have a number of, of cities where are in very hot markets, the, the, the real estate is so high that you've basically yes, priced yes. out your own ecosystem. Yes. Okay. So yes. those places, if, if, if you think they actually have it easier, the, 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 that's actually not true either. That's going so to require a, crucial, a whole nother level of orchestration. So they are not off. That is a very important. Uh, that's a very important point, and that is the, the but, but that is the Sydney context, you know, which is to say there are no underperforming re, real estate markets in Sydney, and it's been hot. I've been there for twelve years, and it's never stopped. You are listening to the Grimshaw Podcast, building the city series, um, and. You know, uh, so I think you're absolutely right. The orchestration has to be sort of cleverer in a certain way because the real estate uh, stuff. And then, of course, the, the other thing is people have been driving everywhere um, in, a, in a city that's got better public transport than most other cities in Australia, but that's not globally competitive public transport. And so what you have in your hands is uh, pockets of places that are close to mass transit, close to universities, walkable, great environments, you know, and got a mixture of companies. And they are the ones, I think, that are pretty natural for this discussion. And as you know, we've got um, a couple of ones now um, officially backed by government as well as the private sector. Uh, we've got two, one in, uh, um, near the central station, which is Tech Central, which whose anchor, I guess, is Atlassian, the big uh, ICT company in Australia. And then you've got the health 
district further west in Westmead, which is around, you know, hospitals and again universities. And these are two very plausible things. One question I was going to ask you is the relationship with the public and private sector in this in this discussion, right? You know, so. Um, I've worked in the private sector much of my life. I come from a strong public sector background. I've always liked the idea of cities collaborate to compete and that public-private collaboration is pretty crucial. Um, is, is, is it crucial to the success of innovation districts? So can success come from either side or, or both working together? I mean, in the in the ideal circumstance, knowing that you know innovation districts are embedded in regional economies, in state economies in countries that you, you want to have as much as you can an alignment between what the government is trying to do in terms of policy, in terms of programs, um, in terms of thinking through sort of the tax structure and how that can be supportive to advance and cultivate, you know, the right kinds of R&D clusters and drive certain kinds of startups and keeping them there. I mean, there's there there is a clear role, right, of government. At the same time, if it's so top down, you have just almost lost the energy of what is truly a district, which is a new localism and bottom up set of acts that leverage those local assets that have been growing and cultivating for decades. So it's about this alignment. And so this is why in the paper, I lay out sort of the seven ahas, if you will, you know, those factors that you really need to consider. And one of those is, understanding what's the right level of government involvement, right? If it's too top down, you will stifle what's happening at that local level. If government is not involved enough and they have important role and purse string and can invest in the catalytic infrastructure and can really, really pull these places forward, then you're going to really miss out. So it's that interesting sort of positioning of what does that look like? And that's from place to place to place. So that's why number one, my like number one aha from after doing the research of 10 innovation districts, but frankly, talking with many, many more, this work around co-designing and co-investing and collaborating, what that structure looks like is so important. So, so, so important. But the role of government, I would argue, let me just, it, 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 it will be in there. In the United States, where many districts say, well, actually, you know, we're bottom up. We maybe talk to government here and there. When we really pull it back and say, wait, let's understand what government has been doing. They have invested in catalytic infrastructure. They have provided public transport. They have created tax incentives that helped grow some specific clusters. They There is a role. So what does that role then look like at the table? And that's the part often to be sorted through. You know, what does their voice look like? One of the things you just touched on there is a difference between um, let's say American cities, possibly European cities as well, and say the US and Australia in terms of local tax base, right? So we, as you know, uh, Australia is actually quite centralized in terms of tax gathering. We don't have the kind of city taxes or state taxes that we, we have in the US and in the UK is very centralized, you know. So you can't give spatial areas your city your city council can't give special dispensation um 
to to your research effort or to your you know your startup or, or through tax incentives um, although there are n- national programs of things like um, you know free ports are coming along and you know sort of low tax regions of the UK or, or uh, you know have been mooted we've seen it before where we've had development corporations up and down the UK where it was like easier to you know um, to invest uh, quicker planning decisions or you know e- easier planning processes or whatever to attract differential investment if you like uh, and to support the private sector in certain areas so we don't quite have the same decentralized tax base as the states do you think that makes a difference it, it means you need to operate differently um, the last five years, I've dedicated significant amount of my both research and practitioner life in Israel. Is national government. I mean, think about the level of power of the Israeli government and the ambition to try to understand how do we diversify our innovation economy outside of Tel Aviv. We have lost a lot of our power, R&D power, innovation power, talent power outside of Tel Aviv. How do we then leverage this? So the innovation district strategy there was how do we build the base of what's happening in Beersheba? How do we build the base of what's happening in Haifa? But so to your point, what they did, they participated in the shaping of this vision understanding what does it mean to collaborate, to compete with the role of the governments there. And then they, understanding the vision, would then identify, this is how they did it, identified a set of resolutions where they would catalytically invest in that vision, specific infrastructure, specific projects, specific organizations, as a way of catalyzing that vision. So every, and that's that's a very extreme case in terms of like how the government and pa- passes down its power and its money, it's very centralized. So for that reason, this is why we knew national government has to be part of that story. How do you strategically involve them? How are they co-designed in the process so they, they continue to contribute. And then how do you, at the same time, begin to empower your local base of actors? Right? Make sure so they like have this, that because what, Yeah. Because what you're saying, I think, is uh, it's optimistic, but based on experience, which is that, okay, you might have different barriers to overcome, right? So, you know, one of the barriers might be that, well, we haven't got a very decentralized tax system so that you know we, we need to find some way to bend that system to to help us locally or to live without it you know we will find some other way to go forward so i think that's very important that it's uh, it's not a council of despair you know it's actually just <laughs> if you haven't got all the elements you can overcome some of them by just Im- imagination and joint action correct correct it's 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 basically understanding the true reality of each context what do we have to yeah. work with what is what what's so uniquely different and limiting about this place that we have to find some creative solutions? Who does that mean then that needs to be at the table? How early do they need to be at the table in shaping shaping and designing this? Oops, careful. What I'm talking about is organizing for success. <laughs> this is what I'm talking about. This is why I keep coming back to why this paper is so foundational for every innovation district, irrespective what country, what economic starting point your region is, where you are, how strong your universities are, 
you must understand there are basics about how you think intentionally to move up because this is not about a random set of acts. It's not. This is moving way past sort of market-led phenomenon. See, this is fascinating. I agree with all this completely, and I think it's an important paper because of this, because what it speaks to, I think, is um, you know that the that there are many historic, if you like, um, innovation districts or that, that emerged de facto. They they kind of weren't planned, but that doesn't mean you know that that'll just happen in other places. And in fact, even the ones that were successful historically might need reinventing through conscious interventions to change them over time. So I think this whole idea of intentionality and collaboration is pretty is pretty significant. I think, and your your view is that there's a mission and then you organise. And right. I think that's that's great. I also think I like the idea. I'd not thought of it before. That in a sense, this this way of thinking forces you to not just collaborate, but to actually have a strategy. It forces you to think through, you know, what are you trying to do, and what are the barriers that would have come. What are your natural assets, and what haven't you got? And I think that's that's quite an important set of questions to answer for any economic strategy. So I think that's that's Correct. really uh, helpful. Yeah. So do you a, do you, do you mind if I bring something up because that's um, yeah, sure. I, I, I want to talk about something that I've lost significant amounts of sleep over. And right, let's go for okay, it. Okay, so um, you know, we wrote the paper in 2014, the rise of innovation districts. There was this global, you know, outpour of excitement and interest, and we had places all over the world. And Almost every corner of the world was arguing, we have an innovation district or we're going to have an innovation district. We see how this works. We see ourselves in it without really understanding the true implications. So if we fast forward to today, what we really have right now is a set of places that are highly intentional, another set of places that are actually on their way. They now really need to organize. And then there's a fad. There's a, gr a whole large group of places that are just pure real estate plays, people trying to just capture the, the name to, to, to grow a market, to build and sort of basically generate their own income under the banner of an innovation district. This is one reason why I'm not sleeping at night, because this notion of what these places are have been coming, been getting lost, if not dissolving over time into some really simplified, almost McDonald version of what dinner should be. Okay. It, it, it yeah. is a complex, yeah. powerful model that requires intentionality. So this is one point. The other point is that the implications of these districts means that if you are not organized and strategic from the very beginning, you could leave people behind. You can outprice residents. You can forget that part of your mission will be around training residents into new jobs. You can forget that story simply because it is a very difficult model. This part of that story cannot be forgotten, but it does require, again, organization, strategic thinking from the beginning. Otherwise, you're going to find yourself bumping against a set of challenges five years out, 10 years out, 15 years out, where you have left 
significant parts of your population behind in the story. And this has to come up today. Right. And so it's I agree with this. I think, yeah. I, th- I, th- I think uh, the integrity of that is very important. And the, the fact that you care about that to the point of sleeplessness does you great credit because, in a sense, it's such an exciting notion that you you know, curated, uh, if not created, you know, based on, you know, your research and your, uh, your wit and wisdom, that it, it people raced off, you know, uh, and, and as you say, use it as a brand, really, rather, not everybody, I mean, loads of people did the right thing, and you, you're advising lots of them and all that kind of stuff. But there were other people who just said, Oh, we've got a bit of a university, we've got a bit of this, and we'll rebrand this area as an innovation precinct or district. And they became a, a bit like a lot of successful things, you know, they, they get copied, and they're not as authentic. But you, you're trying to restore order, in a sense, by saying, here's the, here's the real recipe for, you know, and it involves kind of mission, collaboration, governance. And it's very intentional. But the other thing you raised, which I really like, by the way, is the, is in a sense, the implicit thing about the inclusive innovation bit, you know, which is remembering that there are people who live next door to an innovation district we might want to give some benefits to, is, is how do we measure success in the innovation district thing? You know, what are, the, what are the kind of indicators? And there's a couple of ones that I'd like, one or two that I'd like to try on you. Do you think, I mean, they may not apply to all of them, is your point, right? But, you know, it did strike me that that's if it, the whole thing about, I want to talk about patents. It's the, it's main, people out there might not think it's the most exciting thing to think about, but, you know, I mentioned earlier on that low-density places are not as productive in terms of innovation economy as higher-density ones historically, you know, agglomeration effects and all that kind of stuff. So so you find that actually, you know, and I can't remember the exact data, but, you know, you, you can densify a place and make it more like an innovation precinct and it's better connected with public transport, and you get more patents. Uh, you know, there's quite a lot of evidence around this kind of stuff. But then you have to, um, what's the word? You have to really exploit the findings, develop opportunities from the patents. And I think I'd quite like to go there. It's a bit of a niche mm-hmm. discussion, but are there some parts of your of the uh, global network where you think that they're doing the chain this chain quite well, which is you know economic opportunity, patents, and then there's startups, and then the whole thing about you know how we develop these opportunities. Are there examples of like ripples of you know this, this is actually leading to uh, new businesses and all that kind of stuff? Is is that is that something we could look to? Yeah. So this is at the heart of what innovation districts are really pursuing right now. I mentioned earlier that we've under that we undertook this analysis of 23 innovation districts looking at their R&D strengths from a whole set of indicators to understand the extent that they're converging, the a lot, number of patents that now are citating the research, how it's the impact is being used, the commercialization component of it. And we started to really unravel how much is it really driving a local economy or changing the, the knowledge of that particular area. And here's what we found, right? We found that the innovation districts really are a hyper-local and hyper-global phenomenon. So when we looked at the, the level of knowledge being exchanged, it's exceptionally prolific also globally. This is part of what makes them so interesting is the churning of new ideas and new collaborations that then go back into a district is just increases just because they're so globally wired. 
where there's still work to be done then is how do you exploit that churning set of knowledge and insight into a multiplier of growth? And so as part of this work with these 23 districts, what we're now doing is unpacking that because we know in order to sort of move from research all the way into scaling and actually creating the jobs, there's a whole series of activities that need to happen. For example, the informality of how this research gets outside of a laboratory starts being discussed, debated with industry. Does this happen because they're doing joint partnerships or is it because they're going to have a series of collaborations as the research is unfolding? To what extent are they taking the research? Are the PIs globally minded and thinking through, okay, how can we actually stretch this to create now a different kind of value chain where the industry takes it and scales it? There's about a hundred points, okay, within that process that actually is like a cloud because you just don't know what it is to move from R&D to true D and scaling. So each of these districts now are thinking through how do we play on what we have? That's specific people, specific intermediaries, and the unique leveraging of place to create these kinds of conversations that can move the R into the D. Now, I'm even simplifying this. Okay, but this is the area of work. Okay, this is this is another area of work where you can't just leave it for it to happen on its own. It is, again, intentionality of how you move the R into the D, into the scaling. And I go from district to district to district, and this is a core question they're asked. We need to do more. Let's talk through the strategies of how we can do that. And that's where they're experimenting. But... If they're not organized, if there isn't someone where this is the center of their desk, where they're thinking about how is this happening, things aren't actually going to happen. This is the core of how do you become a multiplier of growth, right? In That's addition really to the idea, equitable piece. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think um, to end on this bit, and then I want to ask you about um, – the impact of hybrid working on this discussion, because I mentioned I would, I would say something about the kind of post-COVID universe, but just to go back one, one step, I think that the that the um, the whole idea, the whole what's the word, the 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 relationship of the venture capital kind of folk to this, you know, is, is Silicon Valley has, you know, it's, it's unusual and unique. I, I'm not sure it's replicable in any, in any sense, but it but it, it it has the whole food chain, doesn't it? Of kind of you know, you've got people starting stuff up, and then you go pitches to various levels of venture capital people and all this kind of stuff. And, and I, th I sense that the, that the, it, to go from patent, patent to, you know, development into product and, you know, your liquid moment and stuff, that whole food chain is, is it would be ideal for, you know, if all uh, innovation precincts were in that, in that condition. But it strikes me that even if they are, haven't got all that, you know, that it's still some useful great breakthroughs locally in, in economic activity and collaboration can come even if they don't lead to that very full, mature kind of um, network of opportunities. Um, Correct. Uh, and it's about, it's about the variety. It's, you know, you can, you can take your area and your businesses forward even if they don't reach a perfect state, I think is what I get from this. You know, the, yep. the, uh, yes. the innovation. Yep. Yeah, but not only that, that, that here's what I'm finding. I, I was yeah. working with, uh, uh, interacting with some researchers in Oslo. I think you'll find this interesting. 
and a fascinating research institution. And they have been playing with how actually do you scale research? How do you move it outside of the lab? How do you move it outside of the office? And what they, you know, and so we were playing with what they were doing. And they said, look, the work that we were doing on the tech side can move and be scaled so much faster, so much quicker with least with the least resistance. Those that are on technologies such as sensors are things that actually can be applied to other conditions, also can be scaled more easily. When we start getting into the life sciences, when we're talking about human health and human body, there's a whole series of regulatory steps that are going to be slowing this. So, you know, you can see them playing with all the different variables that they themselves have been testing to understand what does it mean to move from research to true scaling. And it's there's just not one straight line. And so this is that level of thinking and sort of, I, I would call what they're doing is a form of innovation, which is really about how are you translating this through a whole series of different channels to actually get to an outcome that is saving lives, that is reducing the number of accidents, that is et cetera, et cetera. And that is fascinating. So I find this very, very interesting conversation. I'm, I'm, commendably deep and you, you you know this stuff inside out and by the way i'm i will refer people to all your publications and, all, and the work of the global institute and i'm going to ask you a question about that now before i proceed to my uh, end discussion about uh, where next for this is uh, so if somebody wants to set up how about this if somebody wants to set up a, a, a kind of innovation district What's the, what do you th what do you suggest is their first act and and should you should they contact you or is it have they got other things to, more important to do first what, what what do you think they should do? I think they first need to understand do we have the early assets right and are those early assets sort of the strongest within our region that we could be leveraging? Let's start there, right? So let's step back and just sort of take a regional audit of ourselves. Do we have what it takes? to sort of create an innovation district. And if we don't, who else really needs to be part of that story? So that that's just homework that has to be done. There's been a lot written about it. You know, I'll, they can really go through a whole series of papers, both at Brookings, both at the Global Institute, Bruce Katz writes about it, Greg Clark, Business of Cities writes about it. So, you know, Mark Moreau writes about it. I mean, there's just, just a lot of data and writing. So do the homework and understand like where you have your starting assets. Then start to actually have a real conversation with your leaders about, is this something that they would want to invest in? Because it's a lot of time, it has tremendous payoffs, but this is not a story about people leaning back in their chair. It is a story of enlightened, invested leaders. So if you don't have that, then you should take a minute and say, maybe I'll have a conversation with some of these districts that have done it to understand, can I still move forward? I think there's homework that all these places need to do to be much more self-aware, self-informed, to understand, do I have what it takes? And that's both leadership, the culture, and the assets before just moving on. You know, and of course, we're always available. I mean, we really do try to make ourselves available to help answer questions and be supportive, but there is a growing community of innovation districts all around the world. It's phenomenal. Yesterday with the release of this paper, we had districts all over the world releasing the paper 
throughout the day arguing how they're using the paper or how they're organizing because they get it. So there is a growing community of actors out there that are highly ambitious and really want to take on these challenges. So look, I think that's a, a, a good moment to, to pivot to, to the future slightly. I've got one bracket, which is that part of the homework that we did uh, the, uh, back in 2014-15, when the Committee for Sydney, which is, uh, for those who don't, don't know, is a civic organisation of public and private sector businesses who are doing strategic thinking about the future of Sydney, we were working with the New South Wales government because I'd, I think I'd worked out um, that there was a, a gap in the market in Sydney around fintech. Uh, we didn't have a fintech accelerator or co-working space, and London had created one, and I was quite impressed by that. But that homework that we did was tremendously reinforced by reading your work because we effectively created clumsily a kind of um, initial you know, uh, innovation precinct uh, in and around this fintech accelerator which became known as stone and chalk mm -hmm. which actually has been transplanted to to melbourne but it would never have happened without us understanding the work that you were doing in the brookings so you, you really already had an influence on us early days um i will go to the future so all business models got disrupted by covid hybrid working has been a lot more stubborn than many of us would have expected the status quo ante is not coming back so we've you know in sydney for example we've probably got 60 percent people back two and a half three days a week so you know we haven't got the same physical presence in economic activity it's online virtual you know the stuff right so how has that affected innovation districts on the ground and how has it affected your thinking yeah, innovation districts have been affected um, with COVID, especially in those, you know, early months. And I think that really depends from country to country for how long those months of real lockdown. Um, but th that, was a, that was a dark moment for everyone. I think as, you know, the, the things have opened up, there's now more and more analysis about the, the long-term effects of COVID. And, and, you know, I think what we all see is that it's very uneven. You know, there are some cities that have bounced back. There are other cities that have not. And I, I look at it as there's a couple of factors we have to look at, you know, clusters. What are your economic clusters? There's software, for example, those, those cities that have a strong software or finance um, economy can be more prone for remote work as opposed to deep tech, uh, life sciences. There's a factor of cost, right? Those really highly, uh, you know, outpriced cities and regions, the cost of living is really pushing many to think about either not staying where they are or thinking about what does that mean to move to another place entirely. And that can create a whole new effect on this sort of co-working because they could actually move somewhere else that's less expensive and just and just do the tele telecommute, if you will. And then there's the commute itself, those that have those lengthy commutes. So these clusters, cost, and commute, the three C's, I think, are really shaping how some places have still a high remote work phenomenon and others do not. Now I know there's other factors, but these I think really really play into it. When it comes to districts, you know, I, th I think the long-term effects here is that these places overall are more resilient to the COVID effect. They have a unique basket of goods 
given the clusters that they have, a lot of them in deep tech, life sciences, advanced materials, biotechnologies, these things were prone to the, have the need for an innovation infrastructure, a set of sort of platforms and open innovation processes that are really much more sticky and binding people. So there's that piece to it. And then when you combine it with really having attractive kinds of geographies where it's walkable and accessible, you know, there's a more of an attractive factor that helps people say, okay, this still is a place that I'd want to come back to. So districts have this interesting basket of goods, if you will, that, you know, over in the long term really will make them and has made them more resilient than say many of the downtowns right. of of cities. I like uh, yeah. I like that idea of the, that they've proven their worth as stick and their stickiness. You know that uh, yeah. actually, you know, you know the difference between sitting at home doing some stuff and bumping into lots of clever people with ideas and maybe money for you in a in a physical innovation district. And I think I, I just want to end on that. And and before I say thank you very much for what has been a tremendous discussion actually uh is um i think that the uh i'm haunted slightly by the work i know you will know of uh, carlo ratti who's the guy at uh, mit sensible lab Uh, and he's done this work showing reinforcing the idea that the the innovation districts were working and do work is that he showed all the kind of um, physical ties you know they, they basically monitored people's activities before and after covid in terms of the number of people they contacted and you know because of course innovation and patents come from contacts and collaboration and you know obviously there was a collapse during covid and and some of that stickiness hasn't returned to some parts of our kind of economic ecosphere so that people are not innovating as much as they were before. I'm rather mm-hmm. hopeful that the innovation district, you know, proposition has been so strong and so based on 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 the contacts and the ties that we know leads to innovation and and, and productivity that that it, uh, it 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 is surviving and will survive and I think your point about the quality of place attracting people to make the commute actually um, is going to be quite critical so I, I remain an optimist I think uh, your your uh, the innovation district has proven its worth internationally and I just want to say in conclusion if you don't mind um, it's been a great conversation I think it's been an important conversation we don't always talk about economic development and cities funny enough and I think that uh, you know I'd like to say in, uh, publicly about the work that you've done over many years that it, it's it's very influential very beneficial uh, and you've ha- you've actually had an impact um, in this work and I know you kind of know it but I want to say it publicly and dozens of places probably hundreds of places across the planet are doing things differently and I think better because of the the work uh, that you've done and the impact that it's had. And I just want to say thank you very much for that and thank you very much for coming on today. It was a pleasure to be here. And, you know, honestly, it's, for me, I, I still find it surprising that the work can be so impactful when we keep going and we keep driving. I think I just want to go back to the what is keeping us awake at night. Okay, please take these messages <laughs> and move this work to the next level, because this is what's going to sustain our economies. And it requires this intentionality. So if there's one last 
message, please do not oversimplify what this work is intending to be and to take the time to sit with your leadership and expand what the notion of leadership looks like and who is at the table to shape a collective vision and think through how to orchestrate this. This is so important to the lifeblood of what innovation districts are and what they will be in the future. That's a great message to end on. Julie Wagner, thank you very much. Thank you, Tim. You have been listening to the third series of the Grimshaw podcast, Building the City, with your host, Tim Williams. Join us again for other episodes in the series or listen to the previous series at your favourite podcast provider.